Hello and welcome to episode 44 of Pay-Per-View, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in their true context in a weekly podcast. Pay-Per-View, now on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher and the host website Podomatic. And the first subject this week is California wildfires and wildfires is a far more appropriate term than forest fires for reasons I'll explain. Number of missing in deadly California wildfire drops from 475 to 249 as predicted rain sparks mudslide fears. The number of people still missing after a Northern California wildfire obliterated the mountain town of Paradise dropped to 249 on Sunday, the Butte County Sheriff's Office said. The number was revised down from 475 after people who were believed missing were found in shelters, staying in hotels or with friends, officials said, adding that many did not know they were on the list. The search for the dead is continuing Sunday in the ashen rubble of the so-called campfire that started on November the 8th and killed at least 85 people and destroyed nearly 14,000 homes in and around Paradise, California, about 175 miles northeast of San Francisco. The death toll was increased late Saturday night by one, according to the Butte County Sheriff's Office. Searchers will have a few searchers will have a few more days of dry weather starting late Tuesday. Another two to five inches of rain is expected to drop on the Sierra Nevada foothills through next Sunday, hampering the searchers' work and renewing fears of flash floods and mudslides. Forecasters said the fear is that the rain will drop in intense bursts. Brian Hurley, a meteorologist with the Federal Weather Prediction Center in College Park, Maryland, said on Sunday, "All the vegetation is burned away, and that's a dangerous recipe for mudslides." Hurley said. Last week, two to three inches of rain fell there and turned ash from the thousands of destroyed homes into slurry, complicating the work of finding bodies reduced to bone fragments. Butte County Sheriff Corey Honia has warned that remains of some victims may never be found. The town of Paradise was a popular destination for retirees, with people aged 65 or older accounting for a quarter of its 27,000 residents. Most of the victims of the fire identified so far were of retirement age. With help from the recent rain, firefighters have contained 98% of the blaze, which torched 154,000 acres, an area five times the size of San Francisco, officials said. Investigators have yet to determine the cause of the fire. Well, oh come to that in a minute. Thousands of people forced to flee paradise spent Thanksgiving in warehouses in the nearby city of Chico or with friends or relatives in nearby towns. And there's another article here which goes into a bit more detail on the fire. This is in the Guardian. California wildfires. Campfire becomes state's deadliest with 42 people killed. This was published on November the 13th. A campfire in Northern California has killed 42 people, making it the deadliest in state history, authorities said. The blaze is also the most destructive the state has ever seen, incinerating the town of Paradise and displacing more than 50,000 people as other blazes continue to rage further south. A total of 7,177 buildings have been destroyed, Cal Fire said. The fire grew to 183 square miles on Monday and containment was up 30%. Two people have also died in the Wolsey Fire, a major blaze around Los Angeles. On Monday, officials said the Wolsey fire had burned 91,572 acres and was 20% contained. We are working all day and all night to increase and reinforce that containment, said the Los Angeles County Fire Chief Darrell Osby. The fire had destroyed 370 structures with 57,000 still at risk, Osby said. Donald Trump said late on Monday he had approved an expedited major disaster declaration for California over the deadly wildfires burning at both ends of the state. Trump tweeted on Monday night that he wanted to respond quickly in order to alleviate some of the incredible suffering going on. The Democratic Governor Jerry Brown had requested the declaration which would make victims eligible for crisis counselling, housing and unemployment help and legal aid. 
Trump previously blamed poor forest management for the fires. Brown says federal and state governments must do more forest management, but says climate change is the greater source of the problem. Well, I talk about climate change in episodes 18 and 29. It's very different to what we're told it is. More than a dozen coroner's search and recovery teams are fanned out across the area around Paradise in a grim search for remains. They are visiting scores of addresses belonging to people reported missing since last week's explosive blaze leveled the town of 27,000. Authorities are bringing in more resources to find and deal with the dead, often discovered badly burned in their cars or scorched homes. Two mobile morgue units, cadaver dogs and extra teams of trained personnel. Bright blue body bags are making an increasingly frequent splash of unwelcome colour among the ashes and charred shells of houses and vehicles. Relatives and friends were still searching the evacuation zone and emergency shelters on Tuesday for hundreds who were missing, or repeatedly calling the American Red Cross hospitals and the police as they tried to locate loved ones or neighbours. Statewide, 150,000 people have been displaced and more than 8,000 fire crews are deployed. Authorities have said 228 people are unaccounted for. High winds and dry conditions threaten more areas through the rest of the week, fire officials warned. San Diego is under severe weather watch starting early this week, Osby said. Around Paradise, about 1,300 people have found refuge at evacuation shelters, according to a Cal Fire spokesman, Steve Kaufman. A total which includes several shelters in Butte County and some in Sutter, Glen and Plumas counties, but that's only a fraction of the total displaced from Paradise, Magalia, Concow and other towns in the Sierra foothills. Many converged on Chico, a city of about 90,000, just 20 minutes from Paradise. Hotels in Chico are at capacity with fire evacuees and some, but not all, shelters are full. Others stayed with friends and family or even in their cars, eager to remain close enough to return home at a moment's notice, even though that could be months away. Authorities recovered the remains of an additional 13 people in Northern California on Monday. To date, three people have been identified. Ernest Foss of Paradise 65, Jesus Hernandez of Concow 48 and Carl Wiley of Magalia 77. A Walmart in Chico has become an unofficial refugee camp for those displaced by the blaze. On Sunday, more than a dozen tents lined an empty field next to the store while the parking lot was filled day and night with trailers and cars stuffed with belongings, toys, pillows and family photos. Though without some of the comforts of a traditional shelter, the fire refugees in the parking lot were not forgotten. Local food truck owners were there to provide free food and church groups from around the state cooked and distributed meals. Chico residents provided clothes, toys and gear, free of charge. Evacuees said they couldn't find space at a nearby shelter, didn't want to part from their animals or didn't feel comfortable at a shelter. At this unofficial evacuation centre, tales of generosity by those most affected emerged. Tammy Mazera and her friend Daryl Merritt spent three nights sleeping in a tent outside the store after the fire forced them to run for their lives. When they found out a neighbour, Matthew Flanagan, had slept under a taco truck, they gave him the extra space in their tent. It's like an instant family, Mazera said, petting her dog. We're all taking care of each other. The three made friends with strangers like Andrew Duran, who sleeps just outside their tent and sleeping back, and despite the darkness and loss, they showed endless generosity toward one another. Eating breakfast together on Sunday morning, they showed a few laughs, dancing to Bill Withers' Lean on Me. Isn't it interesting how, in devastation, like with these wildfires, people forget the divisions that normally separate people, or that people identify with, and they just see everyone as people. The fact that it takes devastation for that to be the case just shows you the state of perception of a large amount of the human race but not everyone though which is the encouraging thing anyway the article goes on it's the kind of coming together the community will need misera said after more than 6,400 homes were lost meanwhile as firefighters and law enforcement seek to protect the town and its citizens from the deadly blaze they face the loss of their own homes the fire destroyed the homes of 17 paradise police officers chief eric rainbold said none of the officers missed a day of work since the fire began he added 
The association was working with the CDF Firefighters Benevolent Foundation and the California Professional Firefighters and to assist those firefighters and their families. Several had already been placed into temporary housing, Abadara said. Well, it's interesting when you look at photos of these fires that you've got houses levelled and yet in the area where the houses were affected by the fire, you've got trees intact, intact trees, where a fire was. You can go online and just type in a search engine, California wildfires or similar words, and find images of houses levelled. In one photo, they're all more or less levelled exactly the same. And then trees right next to them intact. How can that be if this was a natural fire? This is what I meant earlier when I said a wildfire is a far more appropriate term than forest fire. Because how can you call it a forest fire if trees are still standing? And even a wildfire may not actually be the right term because people have reported seeing beams of light in photos or videos of the fire or before the fire and this would indicate what are known as directed energy weapons could have been used this would solve the mystery of the intact trees because with directed energy weapons you can obviously hence the name you can be precise or far more precise at least with what you target and there is a target whereas with a regular fire of course it just blazes indiscriminately the obvious question is why? Why would anyone want to use directed energy weapons to target people's homes? Well, I've talked many times about the United Nations Agenda 21 and the agenda to herd people into the city. These are the smart cities, mega cities, and by mega cities I mean massive regions. Instead of all the cities we've got now, basically absorb them into various mega cities, various mega regions. The agenda is to break up countries into mega regions, which is obviously easier to control and administer the control. I've seen it suggested that there are plans to build a high-speed rail system in the area. I don't know if that's true, and I'm not saying it is. But if it is true and they go ahead with that, now the houses have been levelled and amid all the destruction. That's this very agenda I'm talking about because the idea is to end private travel apart from driverless cars which will be programmed to take you nowhere authority doesn't want you to go. And if you don't keep authority happy, then you'll go nowhere. But apart from driverless cars controlled by artificial intelligence and other such private vehicles. They want an end to private travel, and high-speed rail is designed to be the main means of travel in the Agenda 21 Hunger Games Society, which I talk about far more in Episode 4. High-speed rail travel allows authority to dictate from a central point who has access to travel and who doesn't. You can't do that with private travel with cars and bikes, etc., as we have now. So you need a means of either controlling the vehicles, which is the real reason for driverless cars, which the monster Google is involved with. Of course it is. These AI-controlled cars. Google is massively involved with AI, as is Facebook. So you either have control of the vehicles, or you have people travelling on public travel, and you can then dictate who has access and who doesn't from a central point. Travel will also be highly regulated, not just in terms of who can travel, but where they can travel. Total control again, as I said earlier. Also, almost as a side benefit for the elite's agenda, you've got the toxic smoke in this area, and this contributes to creating this toxic atmosphere I've talked about before that the elite want for the world. The agenda is for depopulation and a genetically rewired human which is able to live in the massively irradiated and toxic atmosphere of the smart cities, megacities. We've got toxins all over the place in this world. People are not the primary concern ultimately when it comes to world events and the direction of society. The agenda for the world, the elite's agenda, is the prime concern, and this may well be another example. I emphasise may well be. If it is, and it turns out to be, then it's another example of what I keep saying. Society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. And the next subject this week is... Terrorism. This is in The Guardian. 
Please send MI5 missed chances to prevent Manchester bombing MPs find. MI5 and counter-terrorism police missed chances to prevent the 2017 Manchester Arena attack through a series of failings in the handling of the case of the bomber Salman Abedi, a parliamentary watchdog has concluded. This is the attack during the Ariana Grande concert last year. Abedi detonated a homemade bomb in the foyer of the arena on the 22nd of May last year as an Ariana Grande concert came to an end, killing himself and 22 other people and injuring more than 100. In a report on the five terrorist attacks in England in 2017, the Intelligence and Security Committee singled out the handling of Abedi's case by MI5 and counter-terrorism pleas for damning criticism. What we can say is that there were a number of failures in the handling of the Simon Abedi case, and while it is impossible to say whether these would have prevented the devastating attack on 22nd of May, we have concluded that as a result of the failings, potential opportunities to prevent it were missed, said Dominic Greed, the Tory chair of the ISC. The report also criticised the Home Office over its failure to cooperate with the committee's inquiry into the Parsons Green Tube attack in September last year, in which more than 50 people were injured by a partially exploded bomb left by Ahmed Hassan, an Iraqi-born teenager. Among failings highlighted by the committee in the Abadi case were MI5 and counter-terrorism police failed to take any follow-up action after Abadi visited a known extremist contact in prison, previously named in media reports as Abdul Rauf Abdallah, who was jailed for trying to help people travel to Syria to fight with militants. MI5 did not place monitoring or travel restrictions on Abadi, which allowed him to return to the UK undetected in the days immediately before the attack. Abadi, a subject of interest to MI5 but not under active investigation, have been flagged for review by the security service but its systems moved too slowly and the review did not happen before the attack. Abadi was never considered for referral to the prevent program. The report said there was one issue that caused serious concern but could not be revealed due to highly sensitive security aspects but would be raised with the Prime Minister in a classified report. The ISC also raised two broader issues that played a part in two or more of the attacks. The out-of-date system for regulating the purchase of explosive ingredients which has since been overhauled and the failure of communication service providers to stop their systems becoming a safe haven for extremists. The Times reported that the committee also called on ministers to lobby advertisers to boycott technology companies such as Facebook and Google until they show they were serious about tackling online terrorist material. A baby bought ingredients for his bone from Amazon and watched a YouTube video before assembling it. In the Parsons Green case, the committee said that despite multiple requests, the Home Office failed to provide full evidence in time for it to be included in the inquiry. Greaves said this is unacceptable. From what we have seen to date, there were fundamental failings in the handling of this case by the Home Office, the Police and Surrey County Council. This litany of errors will require a separate comprehensive review to which the Home Office must be directly answerable. The article goes on. The committee said monitoring vehicle hire must be a significant element of counter-terrorism operations in the future. The Westminster Bridge attacker Khalid Massoud and one of the London Bridge jihadist terrorists Kuram Butt hired vehicles before carrying out their attacks. Currently, incompatible systems and limited capabilities are hindering progress in this area, the report said. Last year's attacks revealed there were still problems around the sharing of information by MI5 with the police, which the committee has flagged in the past. Responding to the report, the Home Secretary, Sajid Javid, said, Following the attacks, the government police and MI5 undertook a series of rigorous reviews to ensure we are all doing everything we can to tackle the evolving threat of terrorism. As a result, we have updated our counter-terrorism strategy, introduced new legislation to allow threats to be disrupted earlier and have increased information sharing with local authorities. We are also ensuring technology companies play their part by stopping terrorists from exploiting their platforms. 
the article goes on. The National Head of Counterterrorism Policing, Assistant Commissioner Neil Basu, said, There will be further scrutiny and examination into the circumstances of these attacks, including coronial inquests and other potential criminal proceedings, which may preclude us for the time being from commenting publicly to some specific points raised. In the meantime, we would like to reassure the public that ever since the attacks of last year, we have sought to learn from what happened before during and afterwards, and improve our wider operating model and ways of managing and mitigating the risk from terrorism. We will not let the terrorists who carried out these appalling attacks succeed in scaring and dividing us. Working ever more closely with the security service and learning our lessons, we will do everything we can to reduce the chances of this happening again. Diane Abbott, the Shadow Home Secretary, said, I always have to pause for a few seconds whenever I say Diane Abbott, Shadow Home Secretary, because the fact that she is... Shadow Home Secretary is a confirmation of how much of a joke politics is. Anyway, she said, It's shocking to learn the terrible terrorist attack on the Manchester Arena could have been prevented. This raises serious questions for the entire policing and security system, not simply MI5 alone. These questions include the proper identification, prioritisation and prevention of terrorists, which is an increasingly integrated process involving multiple agencies, or at least it should be. But this government has undermined policing with cuts of 21,000 officers and community policing the frontline ears and eyes on the ground in the fight against terror has been hardest hit. Well, there are common themes to terrorist attacks, and one of them is a lack of security. Either security is withdrawn or cameras don't work when they normally do. Another common theme is with attacks like 9-11, there are war games or exercises, in other words, going on which mirror the actual attacks, and this creates confusion with those in positions of security responding to the attacks. During 7-7 in 2005, there was a mock terror drill at the same time the event happened, involving the same stations. The managing director of Visor Consultants, a private firm contracted to the London Metropolitan Police, organised and orchestrated an anti-terror drill identical to the actual event. During the Oslo bombing and mass shootings in Norway in 2011, the Oslo police in the same area ran a drill based on the scenario of a bomb exploding which ended 26 minutes before the actual event. On the morning of the Paris attacks, there were emergency drills running. Patrick Pellow, spelled P-E-L-L-O-U-X, an emergency medical services specialist and one of the first responders, confirmed there was an emergency drill on the morning of the attacks. There are serious questions to be asked about the security at the time of the Paris attacks. What would the chances be of all these identical drills happening at or around the same time as these events by chance? Prior knowledge of the terrorists or attackers involved in attacks is nothing new. The FBI and CIA admitted after the Boston bombing that two suspects, Tamalan Sarnayev and his brother Jokar, were on watch lists. Two of the jihadists of the Paris attacks were allowed to sneak into Europe via Greece by posing as refugees. A string of clues were missed that could have stopped the event happening. Turkish authorities later detained one of the suicide bombers, Brahim Abdeslam, at their border and deported him to Belgium, but because Abdeslam denied any involvement with militants, he was set free. The French law enforcement authorities were wiretapping the cousin of a suspected mastermind, as he was called before the Paris attacks. Isn't it interesting that no matter how many times security has stepped up after a terrorist attack or a shooting, it's still not enough. We're always told that more work needs to be done and that law enforcement will work closely with the security agencies to tackle terrorism. But it's never enough. They always need more. Terrorism is used in the case of 9-11, it was orchestrated 
by authority, by figures in the Bush government and those that interfaced with it and the intelligence arena to justify transforming human society, often leading to more security and surveillance to catch terrorists. Well, that's worked well so far, hasn't it? And taking away basic freedoms to protect us from the terrorists. Officially, that's why. Anyway, we should also not rule out the possibility of some attackers being mind-controlled to carry out attacks. People in general have no idea of the existence of mind control, never mind the scale of it. Just to give you an idea, nearly all, at least, of the performers, actors, musicians, singers, etc. that you see on TV or hear on the radio or through whatever means nowadays are mind controlled. The scale of it is incredible. I've talked about mind control in episode 9. I'm not saying that's what happened with the Manchester bombing, but we always need to keep an open mind when we hear the official story of an attack. The key point to understand is that the security intelligence arena and authority ultimately are not there to serve the people. They're there to serve the hidden hand elite, which they answer to ultimately, which wants terrorism because they can use it as an excuse to change society in the image of their agenda because society is agenda driven, not people driven. And the next subject this week is China. This is in The Independent. China blacklists millions of people from booking flights a social credit system introduced. Millions of Chinese nationals have been blocked from booking flights or trains as Beijing seeks to implement its controversial social credit system, which allows the government to closely monitor and judge each of its 1.3 billion citizens based on their behaviour and activity. The system, to be rolled out by 2020, aims to make it difficult to move for those deemed untrustworthy, according to a detailed plan published by the government this week. It will be used to reward or punish people and organisations for trustworthiness across a range of measures. A key part of the plan not only involves blacklisting people with low social credibility scores, but also publicly disclosing the records of enterprises and individuals' untrustworthiness on a regular basis. The plan stated, we will improve the credit blacklist system, publicly disclose the records of enterprises and individuals' untrustworthiness on a regular basis, and form a pattern of distrust and punishment. For those deemed untrustworthy, everywhere is limited and it is difficult to move so that those who violate the law and lose the trust will pay a heavy price. The credit system is already being rolled out in some areas and in recent months the Chinese state has blocked millions of people from booking flights and high-speed trains. According to the state-run news outlet Global Times, as of May this year, the government had blocked 11.14 million people from flights and 4.25 million from taking high-speed train trips. The state has also begun to clamp down on luxury options. Three million people are barred from getting business class train tickets, according to Channel News Asia. The aim, according to Hao Yunchen, former deputy director of the Development Research Center of the State Council, is to make discredited people become bankrupt, he said earlier this year. The eastern state of Hangzhou, southwest of Shanghai, is one area where a social credit system is already in place. People are awarded credit points for activities such as undertaking volunteer work and giving blood donations while those who violate traffic laws and charge under the table fees are punished. Other infractions reportedly include smoking and non-smoking zones, buying too many video games and posting fake news online. Punishments are not clearly detailed in the government plan, but beyond making travel difficult are also believed to include slowing internet speeds, reducing access to good schools for individuals or their children, banning people from certain jobs, preventing booking at certain hotels and losing the right to own pets. When plans for the social credit scheme were first announced in 2014, the government said the aim was to broadly shape a thick atmosphere in the entire society that keeping trust is glorious and breaking trust is disgraceful. 
As well as the introduction in Beijing, the government plans a rapid national rollout. We will implement a unified system of credit rating codes nationwide, the country's latest five-year plan stated. The move comes as Beijing also faces international scrutiny over its treatment of a Muslim minority group who have been told to turn themselves into authorities if they observe practices such as abstention from alcohol. Hami city government in the far western Xinjiang region said people poisoned by extremism, terrorism and separatism would be treated leniently if they surrendered within the next 30 days. As many as a million Muslim Uyghurs are believed to have been rounded up and placed in re-education centres in what China claims is a clampdown on religious extremism. This social credit system is an example of what's planned for everywhere, not just China. The agenda is for total surveillance, monitoring and control, and any challenge or questioning of establishment will be punished and, if it's online, deleted. This is where political correctness comes in and non-violent extremism, as I said earlier. This is where social media comes in. Even now, employers often check social media to build up a profile of people they're interviewing and considering for a job. And the idea is that in the end, everyone is monitored by authority and social media is designed to play a massive part in that. When we hear that social media platforms have been told they have to clamp down on certain material or install checks for certain material on their platform, it's just giving them the excuse and the cover to do what they were always created to do in the first place. These are monsters, these social media giants, and they're ultimately controlled by DARPA, the technological development arm of the Pentagon, which is of course fundamentally connected to the intelligence arena. That's who these social media giants are serving, not the people. I talk in episode 19 about these social media giants fundamental connections to the intelligence arena just to point on social media and clamping down on certain content freedom of speech means the freedom to speak if speech is censored before the point of delivery then what you're doing is handing power over what people see and don't see and hear and don't hear to an authority which will always abuse that power what you do is you get the foot in the door you say, well, we can't have people communicating racism and people inciting violence and hatred. And people say, well, I don't, but many people say, oh, yes, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, we can't have that. Yeah, you've got to clamp down on that. But what people don't realize is that's not where it ends. That's where it starts. Where it ends through a process of constantly finding excuses to censor more and more. Oh, now we need to tackle non-violent extremism. Now we need to tackle hate speech. Now we need to tackle this and that. And so what you're doing in each step is finding more and more excuses to censor more and more people and what they're saying. Once you've got the foot in the door of we need to tackle racism, we need to tackle people inciting hatred and violence, etc. And where that ends is the end of freedom of speech, without which you cannot defend any other freedom. So speech, if it's going to be censored at all, must be censored after the point of delivery, not before. If it's censored before, then authority will abuse that power in the way I've just described. People must be allowed to say whatever they like. And people say, what about racism? What about inciting terrorism? And what about it? People say, you can't just say anything. Well, why not? There are laws against inciting terrorism. There are laws against racism. There are laws against inciting violence. But after the point of delivery... Once you bring in laws and you bring in methods, especially with social media, because that's where it's going, to censor speech before the point of delivery, you are giving authority the power to use that claim of censoring speech before the point of delivery to stop incitement of violence, hatred, etc. 
and that authority will abuse that and expand from there what it censors to include more and more material it wants to censor in the way I've described. Going back to this social credit system, I'm sure it will also enable people to spy on and rate each other. And if you are an authority and you want a tyrannical police state, then getting the population to police itself is ideal. Making it difficult to move, in the words of this article, is what I've talked about before, where the basics of life are only granted to you if you acquiesce with authority and don't challenge or question it in any way, and certainly not expose it. This is why the agenda is to replace private travel with public travel, apart from driverless cars, which will only take you where authority is happy for you to go. And if you don't keep authority happy, you won't be going anywhere. This plays into the Hunger Games society because, as I've said before, the agenda is to break up countries into regions, mega-regions, mega-cities. These are the smart cities of the transhuman agenda. China is in many ways a blueprint for the world the elite want to introduce. A microcosm of the macrocosm. The totalitarian nature of the run of that country, the level of surveillance, and the quite considerable presence of technology in everyday life, far more than in the West, although the West is catching up are all crucial aspects of the elite's agenda. And the next subject this week is ID cards. This is in The Independent. Brexit, introduce ID cards to control immigration instead of leaving the EU, report says. ID cards should be introduced in the UK as part of a new effort to control immigration without the need for Brexit, a new report said. Tightening current rules and forcing everyone living in the UK to have an electronic identity card would address many voters' concerns about immigration without the need for Brexit, the Global Future think tank said. The report was backed by Labour peer and former Cabinet Minister Andrew Adonis, who said Remain supporters needed to show they were responding to the issues that led people to vote for Brexit. It suggested the UK should do more within existing EU rules to tighten controls on immigration, pointing out that Britain is the only country in the bloc not to have a national ID system. A system of electronic ID cards that control people's right to live, work, claim benefits and use public services should be coupled with a tougher approach to integration that would force immigrants to learn English, the report said. At the same time, it said the government should plough money into strengthening communities and enforcing workers' rights. Global Future said interviews with European politicians revealed widespread surprise that the UK had not made use of its current powers to manage free movement, as other EU countries have done. The report accused Theresa May of interpreting the Brexit vote to mean freedom of movement and must end whatever the cost, a movement called a mistake. It suggested that British voters are not opposed to immigration in principle, or many are, but want tougher action against criminals and those seen to be taking advantage of the rules. Concerns centre on four areas, the author said, ensuring criminals are kept out, relieving pressure on public services, ensuring access to good jobs and promoting integration. Lord Adonis said the choice between EU membership and controlling migration is a false one. Electronic ID cards would mean we know exactly who is here and gives us real control over access to our public services and entitlements. A new Strengthening Communities Fund could pump £2 billion a year into the public services and infrastructure facing new demand, and we could have tougher minimum wage enforcement and new rules to ensure British workers have the first chance to apply for new jobs when they need it. These policies are practical, actionable solutions to immigration that are already being deployed across Europe. I believe strongly that they will help to persuade voters that the best way to take back control is to stay in the EU and get serious about immigration and welfare enforcement. So let's do that instead of trashing our economy on the basis of a false choice. The article goes on. Calls to resurrect proposals for introducing ID cards in the UK are likely to be condemned by civil rights campaigners. The Blair government put forward plans for a similar system. 
Of course they did, but they were dropped by the coalition following heavy opposition. Global Future said anyone planning to stay in the UK for more than 90 days should be required to have an electronic ID card that would be needed to access employment, public services, benefits and housing. Cards should be free and would cut bureaucracy by ending the need for people to have numerous official documents, such as driving licenses and national insurance cards, the authors said. The report said the system would also allow the government to keep track of where immigrants were living and working. This data could be used to inject fresh funding into public services in areas where immigration is surged. At the same time, Global Future said the government should strengthen workers' rights instead of enforcement squads to crack down on unscrupulous employers, including those that do not pay the minimum wage. And a new multi-billion pound strengthening communities fund should be set up to help teach migrants English and encourage them to integrate within their communities, the think tank said. This would replace the existing controlling migration fund. The investment should partly be used to reverse swinging cuts to English language classes since 2010, it added. Peter Starkings, director of Global Future, said free movement has been good for Britain. It's boosted our economy, created jobs and helped millions of Brits live, work and study across Europe. Throwing it all away is a terrible mistake that will damage Britain and deepen the very burning injustices the Prime Minister has promised to address. But there's a lot of problems with free movement as well. This report sets out a better way. Control free movement so that it works for Britain. At its heart is a new electronic ID card controlling the right to live, work, claim benefits and use public services in Britain. This is a blueprint for free movement that works for Britain, would address public concerns and would allow Britain to maintain the close trading relationship with Europe that people want. The report said European politicians believe the UK could and should do more to restrict freedom of movement without current EU rules. Italy's former European minister, Sandro Gozzi, told Global Future, it is really odd that the UK has not introduced compulsory registration for EU citizens or ID cards or enforced the three-month rule as we do in Italy and other countries. They help us to keep control of free movement within the rules. Well, to a large extent, it's Britain and America invading on manufactured reasons countries in the middle and near east and north africa that has led to migration although there are a lot of opportunists single men jumping on the bandwagon as i've said before i talk about migration more in episode 35 and 21 as well as other episodes migration is an elite agenda and it's being engineered and orchestrated to happen and it's being planned a long time. I've mentioned before in episode 3 called George Soros. I talk about how he's involved with orchestrating the migration crisis. In terms of the ID card itself, well, ID cards are a stepping stone towards the microchip which is itself a stepping stone to nanotechnology or smart dust or digital dust or neural dust. Different names for the same thing. The sales pitch is if we have microchips that will allow us to open doors or turn on our computers without us doing anything and and basically live a more convenient life. But this is the point. Convenience does not equal freedom. People think because new and more advanced technology is appearing and it's making life more convenient, it's being introduced to make life easier for them when in truth it's being introduced as the next stage of human enslavement and surveillance in terms of the microchip and especially smart dust because smart dust can interact with any other smart technology because that's how smart technology works nanotechnology we're seeing being built around us by the day a society of total surveillance with surveillance cameras that's the obvious one and cameras on technology like computers and smartphones but in recent years it's gone beyond that with social media which is the people telling the intelligence arena everything they could ever want to know about the people directly through facebook twitter youtube etc 
Amazon, Apple and Microsoft are also playing their part in this with these AI artificial intelligence assistants, Alexa, Siri and Cortana, which are surveillance devices in people's homes. You've got cameras on smart TVs in people's homes and you've got the microchip becoming more prevalent. I mean, why would an organization like DARPA, the technological development arm of the Pentagon, which is fundamentally connected to the social media giants and behind this technological introduction into society to a large extent, want to create these office assistants, as they're called, like Alexa and Siri and Cortana, were they sitting around one day thinking, you know what, I'm bored of creating drones that can kill and death rays. Why don't we give people office assistants and AI assistants that can allow them to live a more convenient life? Do we really believe that's what happened? I know we're a military organization, usually we're focused on military application, but for some reason, I've just had a thought, let's make life easier for people with AI assistance in their homes. I talk in episode 19 about the fundamental connection the social media internet giants have to the intelligence arena, not least through DARPA. All this surveillance is not there for the sake of being there. It's there to build this surveillance and monitoring structure where whatever you say or do, the authorities can know about, and they know whether you deserve access to the basics of life, whether it be money, food, water, etc. This is where political correctness comes in, as I said earlier. We should not fall for the trap, however, of believing that they don't want us to know about all this surveillance. They do. Because many people, when they know they're being surveilled, will edit their behavior, edit their demeanor, because they know they're being watched. Like the phrase, Big Brother is watching you in 1984. They want people to know, because then many people will change their behavior as a result. This is why these, this is why these revelations by people like Edward Snowden are actually good for authority, in a way, because it's saying to people, look, we're watching you, we want you to know we're watching you, so that you will edit your behavior, because you know you're being watched. A microchip, or nanotechnology, will be the means through which access to the basics of life would be regulated. If you don't challenge the enslavement, injustice, suppression, manipulation and control of authority, and don't expose or even talk about it, then you will be allowed access to money, electronic credit, in other words, food, water, travel, internet, etc. But if you don't, then you won't. Also, if you have a microchip inside you, then you can be externally manipulated mentally, emotionally, and physically. And of course, what we're looking at here is total control and manipulation. And that's the idea. And the next and final story today is on a subject which is a fundamental part of an agenda which takes us to where ID cards are ultimately leading. Geoengineering, this is in the independent. Anti-global warming atmospheric spraying program possible, say engineers. Re-engineering Earth's atmosphere to reverse the trend of rising global temperatures has long been touted as a potential solution to catastrophic global climate change. The idea involves spraying reflective sulfites 20 kilometers above the surface of the Earth into the stratosphere, where the particles reflect sunlight back into space, preventing solar energy from warming our planet further. 
if effective, the technology known as stratospheric aerosol injection could be used to offset the impacts of our continuing greenhouse gas emissions. A new study examining the process of delivering the sulfites to the atmosphere indicates an effective global effort is possible and would be relatively inexpensive if purpose-built high-altitude aircraft were manufactured. The study, published today in Environmental Research Letters, focuses on the hypothetical practicalities of a large-scale project beginning 15 years from now, with the aim of halving the projected increase in man-made temperature rises, also known as anthropogenic radiative forcing. Dr. Gerno Wagner from Harvard University's School of Engineering and Applied Sciences is a co-author of the study. He said, Solar geoengineering is often described as fast, cheap and imperfect. While we don't make any judgment about the desirability of SAI, we do show that hypothetical deployment programs starting 15 years from now, while both highly uncertain and ambitious, would be technically possible strictly from an engineering perspective. It would also be remarkably inexpensive, at an average of around $2 billion to $2.5 billion, $1.5 billion pounds to £1.9 billion pounds per year over the first 15 years. The article goes on. The team confirmed earlier studies indicating the low direct costs of potential stratospheric aerosol geoengineering intervention, but they said they arrived at those numbers with the help of aerospace engineering companies in specifying what the paper calls the SAI lofter, the means of delivering the sulfite payload to the stratosphere. Co-author Wake Smith, a lecturer at Yale College and who held previous positions as chief executive of Pemco World Air Services, an aircraft modification company, chief operating officer of Atlas Air Worldwide Holdings, a global cargo airline, and president of the flight training division of Boeing, said new aircraft will be needed for such a project. He said, I became intrigued by the engineering questions around SAI and the many studies that purport to show that modified existing planes could do the job. Turns out that is not so. It would indeed take an entirely new plane design to do SAI under reasonable, albeit entirely hypothetical parameters. No no existing aircraft has the combination of altitude and payload capabilities required. He added, we developed the specifications for sale with direct input from several aerospace and engine companies. It's equivalent in weight to a large narrow body passenger aircraft, but to sustain level flight at 20 kilometers, it needs roughly double the wing area of an equivalently sized airliner and double the thrust with four engines instead of two. At the same time, its fuselage will be stubby and narrow, sized to accommodate a heavy but dense mass of molten sulfur, rather than the large volume of space and air required for passengers. The team goes, the article goes on. The team estimated the total development costs at less than $2 billion for the airframe and a further $350 million for modifying existing engines. The new planes would comprise a fleet of eight in the first year rising to a fleet of just under 100 within 15 years. The fleet would fly just over 4,000 missions a year in year one, rising to just over 60,000 per year by year 15. Dr. Wagner said, given the potential benefits of halving average projected increases in radiative forcing from a particular day onward, these numbers invoke the incredible economies of solar geoengineering. Dozens of countries could fund such a program and the required technology is not particularly exotic. The article goes on. But despite the low costs, the authors say this should not reinforce the fear a rogue country or operator could feasibly launch a clandestine SAI program upon an unsuspecting world. Mr. Smith said no global SAI program of the scale and nature discussed here could reasonably expect to maintain secrecy. Even our hypothesized year one deployment program entails 4,000 flights at unusually high altitudes by airliner-sized aircraft in multiple flight corridors in both hemispheres. 
This is far too much aviation activity to remain undetected and once detected such a program could be deterred. The article is on. Doubts have previously been raised about the impact of shooting millions of tons of sulfites into the atmosphere every year. Concerns include the impact on the ozone layer, whether the reflective particles would appear to turn the sky white and whether sulfites could cause localized climatic issues in certain parts of the globe, disrupting rainfall patterns. Well, the situation we're looking at here is very simple. Spray the atmosphere for decades and deny such atmospheric manipulation is happening or even possible. And then when enough people become aware of it, say it's possible and might be necessary to save the planet. Climate change is the excuse and I've talked about climate change in episodes 18 and 29. This atmospheric spraying is the very same geoengineering that some people have been talking about for years while being dismissed as crazy and paranoid. Chemtrails are different to condensation trails or contrails from jet planes, which are condensation from the exhaust of the plane and they appear for a few seconds and then disappear and then there's some more and then that disappears and so it goes on. But with chemtrails, they stick around in the sky and they expand out and they contain metals like aluminium, barium, strontium, and these metals and chemicals drop to the ground eventually and people absorb them. We're seeing now the rise of conditions like Alzheimer's and it's been suggested that aluminium could be a cause of Alzheimer's. Ray Kurzweil, a Google executive and co-founder of the Tech University, the Singularity University in Silicon Valley, California, has said that everything in nature will become infused with nanotechnology and become technologically intelligent. And how is that possibly going to happen? In different countries, right across the natural world, unless the nanotechnology is dropped from the sky. This is part of the agenda to create a synthetic world. We're already seeing a synthetic blood being created, as Kurzweil talks about. Synthetic DNA, they call it GNA or PNA. Synthetic skin, etc. And we're seeing synthetic versions of natural remedies. Everything is becoming synthetic. And nature is also planned to be synthetic. Transgender and fluid gender is leading to the end of gender, as I've said many times before. And it's much easier to get people to agree to be a synthetic, or at least partly synthetic, partly technological, non-procreating. Transgender and fluid gender is leading to the end of gender. And it's much easier to get people to agree to be a synthetic, or at least partly synthetic, partly technological form when no gender is involved, which is perfect for the transhuman agenda. Kurzweil also says that nanotechnology will be inside people and there will be a wireless technological connection in the brain via this nanotechnology to what he calls the cloud, which is the smart grid under another name. We're seeing the complete transformation of our world and a complete inversion of our world in the human form to one of synthetics and a synthetic technological non-human form. And we need to become aware of it while we still can. So that's it for this week. That's the news, that's the context and connections, that's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.